Hi, my name is Jennifer Moss. I'm a speaker and an expert in workplace culture and the author of The Burnout Epidemic. My greatest leadership lesson is you can have anything, not everything. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Jennifer Moss, author of The Burnout Epidemic. She's a former tech startup founder who was forced to quit following severe burnout. She says she hit the wall and says the experience was like falling off a cliff. After she recovered, she realised that it didn't need to get as far as it did. She's dived into all the research and become an expert in burnout and kind of workplace culture. And she has written a book talking about how both individuals and companies can prevent the condition. And interestingly, instead of placing blame on the individual, which much of the burnout debate appears to do, claiming people are too perfectionist, they're not resilient enough, they're not kind of taking good self-care measures. She argues that workplaces are responsible for burnout and she can see a future where they could be sued by victims of burnout. We met in her hotel on her recent trip to London and she offers some wise advice for individuals who are struggling as well as for managers trying to lead an exhausted team. So let's move on to the stories on our agenda this week. First up is the chair of the John Lewis Partnership, Dame Sharon White, who survived a confidence vote last week. She faced serious pushback after reports said she was considering selling a stake in the business and potentially scrapping its famous partnership model. So last week, her leadership was tested at a vote at a twice-yearly meeting of the retailer's 60-strong council, which is elected by employees to represent them. A lot of the anger had built up over the scrapping of its staff bonus for only the second time since 1953, after what she called a tough set of results. The John Lewis Partnership, which also owns Waitrose, reported a £234 million loss in the year to the end of January this year, despite £12 billion of sales. So that got us thinking, what should chief execs do in that situation? And we wrote a piece exploring this. Ailish, do you want to give us some context? So this was written by New Street Consulting Group Director Lubna Hack. And the main thrust of the piece is to take accountability for the situation that you're in. There's a reason that this vote of confidence has come to pass and take it for what it is. A couple of the things that were spoken about in the piece were using the opportunity to take accountability because it's a very democratic process concerns and problems can be addressed a little bit more effectively but for a leader they should then focus on their strengths highlight their successes their accomplishments but also use it as a way to face up to their problems and draw on their experiences to explain how they're going to make those changes and how they're going to improve which then helps to sort of instill more confidence in the people that are going to be voting on your leadership and, and judging your leadership. But it's also looking to the future. I guess that was the main thrust of the piece was taking on the situation, turning it into a positive and looking to the future and seeing how you can learn from that experience rather than dwelling on the past, bringing it into the future. Yes, I think that was the thing that I found really interesting that instead of focusing on what happened previously and perhaps, you know, feeling like you need to stand up for yourself, explain why you've taken those decisions, that actually just forgetting all of that mm. and focusing on painting a vision for the future was actually much more effective in winning back employee trust and getting people on board mm. with the future direction. Yeah. So I thought that was a kind of quite an interesting lesson to take from it. Mm. There's definitely, I suppose, when you're a leader being put in that position, 
the automatic thing to do would be to go on the defensive mm. when actually it's not solely about you it's about you and your position within the company so you have to think about okay how am I going to address these issues as a leader so the future of the company can improve and we can make those changes and we don't end up going back to that situation so this situation doesn't happen again yeah completely so it it must feel incredibly personal Mm. to be put up there and confidence vote in you personally but actually don't personalize it it's Mm. not actually about you as a person it's about your actions Mm. and as the chief exec of a business not Mm. as you the individual yes because I suppose as a CEO your role is tied to your worth as a person and I think a lot of us do that actually Mm. in the workplace especially now that the lines are sort of blurred between your personal life and your work life with the rise of hybrid working your ability to do your job and to do it well is linked to your worth as a person when actually they've always been separate Mm -hmm. and I think it would serve leaders well to remember that when they're in that situation even though that might be quite a difficult thing because as we said you'd automatically want to go on the defense you have to remember that it's about the company I'm thinking about the company and the future of the business and the people that work for that business as well. Exactly. And, and that also would help try and avoid burnout, et cetera, as yes. well, because <laughs> it's that kind of blurring of the lines and feeling like your entire identity is how you perform at work, mm. which can be um, damaging yes, psychological position yeah. to be in. So continuing with the subject of bonuses was a story last week that a third water company chief exec had waived their bonus due to public anger over the dumping of sewage into British rivers. So the chief execs of Yorkshire Water, Thames Water and South West Water have now all given up their bonuses. This got us thinking, under what circumstances is it appropriate for chief execs to give up their bonuses? And we have put out a poll for our readers and I think, Adish, you've got some preliminary results are in. So as we speak, this poll is still running and we're still collating the data. But at the moment, we asked our readers a series of questions And 86% agreed that a CEO should forego their bonus if the circumstances were appropriate, if they called for it. And a further 80% said that they themselves would waive their annual bonus. And we gave a list of reasons, uh, different circumstances that may push a CEO to forego their bonus. For example, perception of fairness, we're living in the, in the cost of living crisis, poor financial performance, failure to meet ESG commitments, public scrutiny, etc. And so far, the most common reason would be poor financial performance. So that seems to be the biggest or the main reason why a CEO would agree to forego their bonus. So I think that's fascinating because I think that says a lot about what people think a chief exec should do and should be measured on Mm. we put lots of different factors in there including missing targets on ESG Mm. which obviously is a growing area of scrutiny for chief execs and also things like just core service competence have you delivered your core services Mm. or failure to do so Uh, we put in things about data privacy are you protecting that so for for all of that stuff it's still Mm. fundamentally people are thinking it, Mm. it still boils down to financial performance well I suppose if the company has not performed well financially there is an argument there that well if the company's not met their financial targets where's that money for a CEO bonus going to come from yeah that's true I I just think it's interesting because we talk a lot about all these modern ways of maybe slightly more progressive leadership targets and for it to still fundamentally be down to Mm. how much money is a company making I was I'm surprised by that Mm. I suppose it still reinforces that 
businesses at the end of the day are all about making money and that's the the most important thing. We also put the question out there to other CEOs and we've had a couple of comments come in. So Michael Alexis, who's the CEO of teambuilding.com says, CEOs should waive their bonuses when the company has experienced significant financial loss. He says, if the CEO feels responsible for these losses and believes that they could have done more to prevent them, it may be appropriate for them to decline their bonus as a gesture of accountability and responsibility. It would send a clear message to shareholders and employees alike that the CEO takes their role seriously and is willing to take personal responsibility for any setbacks or failures endured by the company. We've got a slightly more cynical view from Anna Stella, who's the founder of BBSA Marketing, and that is when a CEO waves their bonus, it's often viewed as a symbolic gesture towards the staff, stakeholders and the public. However, how the decision is communicated may sometimes come across as a publicity stunt aimed at getting goodwill from the public. She says, employees hardly make headlines for not receiving bonuses, even if sometimes the bonus is larger than their salary. On the other hand, CEOs seem to make a point to ensure that people are aware of the decision to cut their salary, even if it means using the media. And this is interesting. She also says that a CEO who's not an entrepreneur or a founder of their company should always have their salaries and bonuses linked to the company's performance. And then it should be adjusted accordingly. So if a company doesn't meet their KPIs, the CEO should be liable and should waive their bonus, which I thought was quite an interesting mm. way of looking at it. So if a CEO is an you know an incoming CEO to an already established company, if it's not a company that they themselves have grown from the bottom up, then they should be the ones to be held accountable for any financial failures. Mm. It's just really fascinating. I mean, this this kind of Milton Friedman philosophy that the only point of business is to make money for mm. its shareholders, and that's the kind of that's its ultimate responsibility and purpose, I guess. I feel like that's become kind of outdated thinking in business now and there's much more discussion about the kind of impact a business has on society and the different kind of roles it plays and um, so I'm interested that the that our readers have come down to just purely yeah. financial because I can imagine I, I do see the point obviously but I think there are some situations where perhaps you could have a very good environmental performance or sustainability performance mm. or something where you've invested money in that and therefore you've seen a kind of fall in your profits as mm. a result and, and, and that some people might think that actually is a success in, in that situation mm. but um whereas companies for example like the water companies who are mm. releasing sewage into rivers and all the kind of damage that that could potentially be causing are still making very good money so it's a kind of really interesting mm. um debate or the kind of ethical you know where the ethics lie yeah well looking at our poll that we have online the second and third places for the circumstances in which a ceo could be pushed to waive their bonus the second most common one was perception of fairness and the third was failure to meet esg and they were quite close okay there wasn't much in it between those three so even though they're saying that ultimately it comes down to poor financial performance they do recognize that there are other mitigating factors mm. um but as we said this poll is still running and so we will have updated figures uh, so watch this space get your votes in now yes <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this week we'll now move on to the interview with jennifer moss so thanks for joining us jennifer on management today's leadership lessons podcast you are the author of The Burnout Epidemic, which came out in 2021, 
So you're an expert on burnout, and obviously this is still a massive issue for people in the workplace. To start, can you define burnout? I follow the WHO definition of burnout. Essentially, burnout is defined as institutional occupational stress left unmanaged. And they made a point to say that it was institutional workplace and not in the life experience because they wanted to show that the root causes of burnout are actually about accountability in the institutions. And it really shows up in these three major signs, high levels of depletion, exhaustion, levels of cynicism increase. So you sort of feel this sense of hopelessness that you can't change anything, you're disengaged, and then, you know, lack of efficacy in your job. So you you start to make mistakes, you start to not feel confident in yourself and your belief in yourself, and you lose that value and purpose, which is integral to being motivated and inspired at work. Great. And now give us some statistics about why this matters to leaders. A lot of the time, the debate is about, you know, what it means to individuals, but as leaders who are running the business, how do they mitigate these risks? Well, it's very expensive. Globally, the amount of time and productivity loss equals almost a trillion dollars annually. So it's significant. Uh, And so there's a good business case for it. But we need to help leaders understand is that it's not as big of an overhaul as they think that it must be because the term burnout is nebulous. We don't know how to deal with it. We're seeing people resigning at um, pretty big levels, almost shocking levels. People are what they're calling is quiet quitting, which I don't really love that word, but it's more like they're disengaged and there's a reason for it. Um, but this is is happening, which is very expensive to be losing staff and hiring them. And what we have to understand is that it's really just about focusing more upstream. Stop providing tactics to people that are already there, that are already burned out. I mean, they can't they can't optimize at that point. They can't motivate. They're exhausted. So let's catch people on the way there. And that's really data gathering, analyzing, being educated on how you detect and predict those issues and making sure that your direct managers are doing a better job of that awareness so they can stop it as well um, before it gets too, too far. Do you think that the workplace has actually got more stressful or busier than in the past? I mean, I guess forever people have been complaining that their jobs are stressful or they're having to work too hard. So do you think that there's actually something changed in the work that we're doing or why are we potentially spending more time doing the same work we were doing pre-COVID, for example? Well, we've added two and a half more hours to the workday. That seems on average there's some countries that have added up to four hours. What we've seen is just, again, for people that are working remote or hybrid, their commute is gone potentially, but they filled it with time working. So they're they're still adding in that productivity. It's also that we are stressed. And so it's harder to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. When we are working remotely, we tend to not know when it's start and finish of our workday. There's no bifurcation. So it kind of bleeds into the whole day. So all of those things are adding to our workload. So what do you think they should be doing now to fix this issue? I think organizations need to take up a pause and it doesn't need to mean that you're not going to you know, meet shareholder value. And I know there's huge expectations and jobs reports. There's lots of pressure and just there's catastrophic effects in the market when, you know, there's a, we think of a pause in an organization, even the tech layoffs are scaring everyone. I mean, there's pandemonium and I think we're okay, but what we need to do is just internally take a pause and do an assessment of 
what are some of the ways that we're being inefficient? What are people complaining about? What are people saying when you ask them, you know, what is the biggest frustration? And so when you look at that in a micro way, it's really just getting into the words, the narrative of what people are saying, and then choose that one problem to focus on. And then the next time, choose that next problem. Focus on the one thing that you can fix. And then in six months, ask again and focus on the one thing that you can fix. And it's going to take time, but at least with the data, you'll be able to target your efforts instead of a one-size-fits-all strategy. That's a good point. So basically get more granular about what it is that people are saying that they need. I think often the response in a lot of organizations is to keep their initial response very broad, high level, start talking about well-being, offer resilience training, or just start saying, oh, you should leave on time, you know, just just stop working, which, you know, doesn't actually fix the systemic issue if somebody is overworked and, or has just more work to do than they could fit into their time. So your advice is to get more granular and really listen to what employees are saying to you. Yeah, I think that we can fix things. And when we do this big well-being strategy where you have well-being weeks and webinars, they're great. But again, it's like the wellness perks are wonderful for optimization and for those people that are well and people that are well tend to be more engaged in those kinds of programs but we should be looking at very specifically solving the root causes of burnout first the hygiene the corporate hygiene the base level stuff if you fix that then people get their time back then people can then utilize it for the types of programming that you really want or your team to enjoy and participate in they can't do that unless you're solving for those those basic needs. Why do you think leaders aren't doing that? Is it because they're concerned it's going to require lots of money or take lots of effort and time they don't have? Or is it this feeling that, you know, the, the younger workers particularly should just sort of suck it up and get on with it because that's what they did to get to the top? Is that the barrier? Well, I do think it's a misunderstanding of the problem. I think burnout and this topic feels broad and what does that mean? And they think of it as a a mental health issue, which it is, but solving it within the workplace because it's institutional stress is different than how you would support someone with depression and anxiety, for example. And there's also pharmacological and treatment and therapeutics for those types of symptoms. And we don't have that with burnout. So when we look at it as institutional stress, unless if you really want to you know, solve it, you're going to have to find out how you are at the center of it. You need to realize that the accountability is really at the organizational level. Yes, you know, we have a responsibility to our own happiness and psychological fitness is important for our own life satisfaction, but organizations are responsible for not detracting from that effort that we're putting in. And again, you can bury your head in the sand, but if you don't actually tackle the workplace problems and you're trying to solve it like you're solving for mental illness, it's not going to work. It's just much, much further upstream that you need to prevent people from falling in versus trying to pull them out, you know, all the way down the river. That's interesting because the response has certainly seemed to push it back to the individual. And there's lots of discussion about different personality types, you know, some people being more um, susceptible to it. Um, And I I think you mentioned that in your book as well, um, that some of the qualities you might need to be a great employee are also some of the same characteristics that may push you into burnout. So can you just explain that to us? 
Absolutely. I mean, there's certain sectors that attract and love perfectionists, and that is one of the personality traits at risk for burnout. And you see that in healthcare. I mean, it's a type A perfectionist type of personality is very drawn to being a physician, is drawn to being a partner in a law firm, is drawn to being a partner in a consulting and financial firm. I mean, those are the types of people that you're trying to attract, and yet we need to be responsible for the fact that, you know, they're delivering to us on all the things that we love about that personality type. But at the same time, if they aren't the type of person that's going to model their own self-care, for example, leaders that are doing a bad job of it, then employees can't be what they can't see. So we're attracting people that aren't doing a good job of preserving their own health and wellness. They are ones that are all or nothing thinkers. So, and that's a cause of burnout where they're feeling like if I make this one mistake, for example, physicians really feel that way. You know, if I lose one patient in a surgery, then I am a terrible doctor. You know, I shouldn't be doing this job. That all or nothing thinking is very much a perfectionist type personality trait. So we have to recognize that, you know, that we're a whole person. And when leaders don't see the whole person, then what happens is those people that are our high performers that we really appreciate and we need to be driving the culture in the organization, then we need to also make sure that they are managing some of the things that could be holding them back from being their best. I think that's a really key point. So you're saying that burnout is the fault of a business uh, and not the individual. If that is the case, then I can see in the future that may lead to kind of lawsuits from employees, you know, saying that the company is um, not meeting their responsibilities to them. Have there been any cases where somebody has sued their company over burnout? I'm waiting to see for that. And Mm. it hasn't happened yet. But we are starting to see some litigation. I mean, there was one that was close by here. And I'm, I'm not sure if it was It might have been in the UK, actually, but it was one gentleman who was working at a financial services firm and he sued the company because the expectation was to be drinking after hours. And that was sort of part of the culture. You know, you go and have beers at a pub and, you know, there was just getting drunk and then it would lead to just really over the line behavior and, you know, stuff that would not be allowed inside the workplace was suddenly okay because you were at a bar, but it was with all of your work colleagues. And so he opted out and then he got fired around six months later because he wasn't a, a good team player and he won the case. So it's interesting that this is starting to happen where we're saying these culture aspects are impacting my well-being and my life and I'm I'm seeing you know more conversations around that the thing is it has to be identified I think by the WHO as a medical condition they've called they've added it to their international classification of diseases as a symptom of institutional stress as a syndrome but they haven't actually put it as a medical condition in the DSM it's not treatable so I think when that happens then we will see a different level of accountability and risk. And there will be need to have some risk management around that because I can see litigation being something that comes out of all of this. Do you think they're actually going to make it a disease? I know the WHO is is working towards it and we're seeing way more research around it. We're understanding the implications and we're understanding the catastrophic impacts. It is considered a medical condition in Sweden. And 
Dr. Marie Asberg, who's based out of Stockholm, she's been measuring it. They call it extreme exhaustion disorder, but it's essentially following all of the same criteria as we define burnout elsewhere. I think there's a benchmark there to be able to look at that and and say, okay, we can create these types of policies in other parts of the world. And I know the WHO is working on it, but the DSM, it's just so hard to be added to the DSM. I mean, you have to have a good 10 years of real focus on it as a medical condition before, or even more, sometimes it never gets added. So there has to be, I think, a desire and a push. But the last couple of years have definitely made it so that people are investigating it more. So I feel more hopeful than I did before the pandemic. Mm, Well, interesting. There is a case I've seen in Australia that was going on recently between a politician and her chief of staff. And I think the chief of staff was fired by her boss, supposedly for not working hard enough. And she's now sued her boss. And there's this big kind of legal bust up going on. And it's very public because she's a big high profile politician. And it's kind of really getting into detail about what people, particularly politicians or people in very high kind of power positions should expect from that very busy chief of staff role. So that's an interesting debate to follow. And I think it does raise questions about whether leaders should take this into consideration when they're uh, assessing the risks in their organization. I love this. And I think it is precedent setting, depending on what happens with it. But the thing that really bothers me and I'm seeing and hoping that there's going to be some change is around this above and beyond, you know, mentality. What is above and beyond? And so we want people to work harder, but we haven't delineated and defined what above and beyond is. So because it's so ambiguous, then you can work 80 hours and think that that's enough. But then that person next to you, because you're working 80 hours, feels like, oh, well, I I should work 85. And it just creates this environment where people are competing with each other to go further above and beyond until there's a point where it's just completely unsustainable. I mean, we're hearing in certain consulting firms of 100-hour weeks, and it's really dangerous. The WHO says over 55 hours is considered overwork, and you start to see real impacts on, on life span and longevity. You see impacts on heart health immediately declining after 55 hours. I, obesity and diabetes are real implications. So it's serious. It's a serious impact and catastrophic in some ways if we don't manage for it. And yet the above and beyond mindset is still still there in existence. And, and I think when there's a lawsuit and when you know someone wins that lawsuit, we'll have to get better at defining people's expectations in their job and then they can make decisions of whether that's something they want or don't want. <laughs> I guess that's the dirty secret really, isn't it? That you know, a, a good leader has often been somebody that can get more work out of the people that they manage just by kind of inspiring them rather than necessarily paying them more. And in your book, you talk a lot more about focusing on outputs rather than hours in. And this is an obvious point. People know this. But I think actually having to implement that is really difficult. Do you have any advice on how to make that switch? Outcomes are very important in that you want to just trust. You know, you need to trust and you need to recognize I've hired this person we've spent a lot of money on attracting them to us. We spent time, you know, deciding if this person has talent. We've decided this person does have talent. They have a merit to this job. And so if you have really good 
upstream ways of decoding that and bringing people in, then you should trust that they can do the job. There are actively disengaged people inside of every workforce, but we have to look at the rest of the workforce and make policies around them and trusting them. And the less we trust them, the more likely they're not going to give us the outcome. So one question I have with this output versus input thing is that it sounds great in theory, but how do you solve for the fact that the workloads are just too high? But nobody ever maps the actual amount of work to the time that's required to do it. And so that sounds brilliant in theory. But, you know, if you've got a job that just requires you to do too much work, you're still going to be massively overworking. And then you're going to feel that it's your fault as well, that somehow it's your time management skills that are not good enough. And then also from the company perspective, they can then turn around and say, well, we've given you flexible hours and you're still not managing the work. So therefore, this whole flexible working you know, stuff is, is not working. So how do you make sure that companies and managers, you know, proactively manage the work to make sure that it's actually appropriate for their employees? I love that question because it's complex and that you are now seeing employers frustrated with people having two jobs and working remote. They're being told these are your goals and people can work really fast and achieve them and then have a whole other job on the side. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that's commonplace, but you are seeing it as a trend. And and so that's when managers need to be knowing, can you, you know, achieve more goals? But at the same time, you you want people to be able to work fast and get their work done. That's a great thing and we need to reward that. So it's, again, a complicated dilemma that managers have, like how much should I expect of someone and is it equitable? Am I expecting that person to do more than this person? And, and then I think it's more about being a manager and a leader that – has more frequent check-ins, more conversations about what you're working on and where you're at with your work. Would you like to be challenged more? Is there more that you want to be doing? You know, can we create real succession paths for people? And this is a problem because a lot of managers are promoted because they're good at their job, but not because they want to be managers particularly. I mean, there's um, some statistics about the number of accidental managers. There's a you know, huge number of accidental managers in the UK. They get into that role. They're not really trained in it. Um, they don't have a burning desire to be a manager. It's not sort of a respected position. You know, we don't have the same sort of sense of professionalism around it in the way that perhaps they do in some other countries like the States. So it, it's more a kind of a sense that they're sort of forced into this position because they need more money. And the only way to get that is to move up the ladder. And it's very complicated to make sure you're mapping hours to tasks and making sure everyone's happy with that. You know, that requires a lot of work and effort and energy and you know, obviously these are huge generalizations, but I, I, I'm not sure that lots of people want to do that. So I wonder if that's part of the problem. This is such an important topic. And, you know, executive leaders at the highest level have a lot of agency to make decisions. And I mean, employees can revolt to make those decisions, but managers are really kind of sandwiched in that that middle ground. And they've also been there long enough to hit that tenure. And so leaving has different consequences for them as well. And I did a talk throughout the pandemic and, and still actually do this talk. It's exhausted managers leading exhausted teams and they are exhausted. And it is because they have the pressure to still meet the expectations and the targets. They have to get their employees to meet those targets. And yet they're extremely exhausted and burnt out. So what managers are doing are taking on the extras. They're taking on the extras. And then they also have to lead. And what we mix up a lot is leaders and managers are different types of 
personalities and, and job expectations. Managers have to, to manage, you know, HR, they have to manage, you know, getting people to do their job. They have to make sure everyone's sort of in line doing what they're supposed to do, but then they also have to be hands-off so that they can inspire people to do what they want to do for their own reasons. They need to have succession planning. They need to do all of this with their team and they often put themselves last. And so that is a real problem that we need to address because we're seeing a lot of those mid-level managers, you know, quitting. They're really tired. And also I think, you know, within that that group, they're not great at, at self-care. I mean, they really feel like that they're the way that they're working and the amount they're working is really showing the team that they'll take it all on, not recognizing that, you know, they're not modeling that for them. So then everyone sort of just spins up and does more and more work. We need to recognize that leaders are those that are really good at, you know, inspiring and kind of directing the future and thinking about what should be, you know, transforming the workplace. They're in that special role where they really shouldn't have people under them. And so managers are expected to be leaders and managers at the same time. And because of the way that we promote people in this hierarchical way is the more people you have under you, the more that you're going to move up in the company. But some people are really not great at managing people, but they're excellent at leading. They're really good at that. And so having, you know, we talk about a technical track or a manager track, we should have a leadership track and a manager track. And you still move up in the organization as a manager. Of course, you're in that people leadership role. Some organizations actually do this already. They're doing a really good job of it. But those individual contributors that are still very effective should also be looked at as being just as effective, but just not necessarily, you know, managing people under them, which is not what they're good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and identifying those skills between both of them and continue these tracks of succession and and moving up uh, without having to have, you know, more and more people under you, you know, you, that you suck at, yeah. you know, managing. <laughs> I mean, it's just terrible for the culture too. Exactly. It will have a knock-on impact on everybody you're working with as well. So totally. it's yes. not good for an organization to be doing that. So let's talk about some practical steps for leaders. And there are two points here. And and one is how as a manager or leader, you spot burnout in your team and how you prevent it. And you talked about going upstream. So are there some quick things that leaders listening to this podcast could implement today that would make a difference? And then we can talk about what leaders and managers could do when if they believe they're personally affected by burnout. Managers need to first recognize and I've said this a few times in this conversation around modeling the behaviors, and that can be really hard. Managers are terrible at it, and leaders are terrible at it. And it, you know, at the top, having to walk around with a gym bag telling everyone you're going to the gym is is not a bad idea. It sounds ludicrous, but having leaders do that, and it's actually taken from you know someone that. I was talking to at the event I was at yesterday, they were a senior, you know, CHRO, and they literally like forced their CEO to say, I'm going to the gym now, like take your time off too. And it changed perceptions around just being able to do that. And and again, it's for managers and executives, they think, oh, like, I'm not going to tell people that because I don't want to have people think I'm not working. But what it does is it transforms the culture. And so we have to really be overt 
about it. You know, we need to make sure that we are turning our emails off and not doing meetings on vacation, all those things that we know to be true, but aren't practicing. It's very important that we do that. We need to make sure that when people email us on weekends, we say, I'm not going to answer your emails. So don't bother because what happens is that person emails and then the other person feels like, oh, you're doing it. I need to do it too. So just say, if you email me on the weekend, I will not answer you. I mean, really be diligent to tell your team what is above and beyond and what is not celebrated. And when we see people at the office at eight o'clock at night, we should be telling them to go home. We should be turning the lights off at a certain point. Those are the kind of things that we need to be very overt about. And then we will reap the benefits as a manager because we will have to walk that talk and we will recognize that our time is being back and we will recognize that we are more productive. Have more conversations where there are non-work-related check-ins with people, non-work-related conversations, getting to know people. I had this opportunity in the book to interview Dr. Martha Bird, who's the chief anthropologist for ADP. She says we need to be professional eavesdroppers. That's our job. And managers should be doing that explicitly. And it sounds sort of strange. You know, what does that mean? But it means listening to what lights people up and what are, you know, stressing them out. If someone's talking about not sleeping, you know, in these non-work related check-ins over and over again, maybe we should address that. Is there something in our EAPs that we can share with them? Is there, you know, a conversation that can be had? We can ask about workload. What's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to leaders? My biggest piece of advice would be that you can have anything, not everything. And I learned that the hard way because as a founder of a tech company, I wanted to be everywhere and I felt the pressure as a female founder to be on all the boards to advocate because there's only 7% of women that get funded in tech companies. And, and so I would say yes, constantly. And then also when you're trying to be a startup that goes to a stay up, you have to be funding constantly and getting money constantly. And it was just an exhausting thing. And I realized I was saying yes to everything and it wasn't fitting into my priorities. And so I completely brought in that concept of this idea of there's choices to be made constantly in life. And one has to be at a sacrifice of the other. And that's okay. That's just what life is. But if you don't have your priorities set, then you tend to choose the everything without any sort of understanding of the consequences. You know, my family is very important to me, but in that everything place, and you don't know your strategy, you're losing sight of the things that are really your priorities. So what I started to do was say, okay, what are my main three priorities in life and families first? Okay. So every time I say yes to something, I have to consider, will that take me away from my family? And what is the right amount that I can be away? So I can have both things. Yes. It's a and statement, not a but statement, but what it does is it makes sure that when I say yes, it's clearly in alignment with who I am, my values, what I want to see in my future, what matters to me most. And things can be exciting and shiny and pretty and you want to take them on. But unless they make sure I'm being still fueled by the, the priorities in my life, you know, then I take it on. Yes, we talk a lot about priorities in a work context. You know, don't let the urgent beat the important, etc. But it's very important as an individual as well to stop getting that burnout, to um, have a strong sense of self and your personal priorities or else you're going to get into trouble. Because I was 
burning out in that role as a tech, you know, co-founder, I went through the experience of burnout. And it was a reason why I wanted to write this book and share my experience in the book, because it doesn't have to get that far. And I'm hoping, you know, in that story that I share, that people don't get to the point where they've risked the things that really matter to them. You know, they wake up and it's too late. I mean, I'm lucky that you know, my family was still there. And, you know, it was maybe a bit kind of like, you know, bruised and that I was really stressed and had a time where I wasn't engaged with them. And it hurt, you know, I don't think it needs to get that far. And that awareness has made me understand when I talk to other leaders that, you know, they're just not considering that part and they're expecting that that will wait and they can put that off. And when we're talking about human beings and unconditional love, <laughs> you know, it's there is a condition, there's a point. And so I think people need to really look at what what I say is their deathbed regrets. You know, are you going to be disappointed with yourself for not sending that email out at 11 o'clock on that Wednesday afternoon, you know, 20 years ago? Are you going to be disappointed in yourself that you missed dinner with your children for six years of your life? That is where we need to guide our priorities. You know, and it sounds morbid, our death by regrets, but really just think what really matters? What do we want to look back on in our lives? That's such a powerful point because time does move on. It goes fast. And I think when you're surrounded by so much noise from all the different social media sites, from your friends, the WhatsApp groups, you know, the, the news, there is so much input all the time from everywhere. And it's quite hard to find the time to just listen to your own thoughts. I find that is exactly the problem that I still face. I had to really get back to that and be very intentional and and do the things that are hard to do when you're demotivated or you're exhausted, the things that we put off, like spending time with people that give us that effortless state of belonging, you know, our really true friends, the ones that are loyal so you can tell them I'm too tired to see them and they're okay, which we do. And meanwhile, they're the thing that we really need, taking time and actually going for a walk, you know, getting outside. These are simple things, but when you're burned out, you don't do those things because you're so tired. But the ironic part is that it's the thing that'll help you. And so I had to be doing that work and remembering what it was like when I didn't and how sick I got. And so those simple things, doing them, even though they're really, really hard, and sometimes just celebrating, you know, making your bed in the morning or <laughs> getting up and showering, those types of things, because it does mimic depression in a lot of ways you have to just feel like you celebrate the small wins all day long until they start to grow into bigger wins and lay yourself sort of take yourself off the hook if you have uh, struggling days and i found that that like is has really kind of helped me in this the last few years just in general as we're feeling that languishing that people are feeling and all the inputs and i do take media diets too I learned about epistemic and uh, perceptual curiosity. And perceptual curiosity is when you are trying to scratch an intellectual itch that won't be scratched. And so you feel dissatisfied all the time, which is doomsday scrolling, which is on the news channel, just watching it. But epistemic curiosity is just being curious like a child and finding novel things and exploring and going to art galleries and museums and reading books for fun and being bored and doing things that are just not for any real goal or purpose, but to 
experience new novel ideas. That really works for me too. And we find that not in all the great mood boosting chemistry that happens from it, that people just feel generally happier when they engage in that kind of practice. And so I think, you know, managers and leaders, these are the types of things that might seem silly or easy or oversimplified, but all pulled together, they do make a huge difference. And, you know, I can say just from my own experience that it really does help you navigate very challenging times. Yeah. I think small things can make a big difference. And yet, as you say, we often overlook it because it seems too easy. You know, it's too simplistic. I interviewed the author Daniel Pink about motivation. He said exactly the same thing, which was to focus on small wins each day. And over time, that accumulates in the same way that burnout accumulates in the in the, you know, the negative way. Can I ask with you, how long did it take for you to hit the burnout wall? And how did you realize you were there? And you know, how, how long did that take you to recover? It's interesting because I map on to that timeline that Dr. Asberg mentions. It's usually 18 months to two years of getting there. And I could see, you know, symptoms brewing. I was more fatigued. I was more withdrawn. And that started. But then I started noticing a level of cynicism really at the end that was a big known moment for me now that I reflect on it. And now when, you know, as I spend so much time in the data, when we start to see cynicism in an organization, that's when it's almost too late. When we've got to that point, it's very difficult to undo. And you can imagine that most of the organizations at that point are going to have employees fall off the cliff. And that was me where I just felt like I, you know, I couldn't change things. And I felt so hopeless. I felt like I wasn't making an impact and I didn't feel good at my job anymore. I didn't feel like I added value. And I was working in the field I studied for and that I'd spent a decade focused on. And I was past my 10,000 hours. I was a master of this. And I felt like I was not good at my job. And that led to me completely breaking away from the company that I you know, helped build and having to take four months of recovery and realizing you know, how much damage was done to my relationships and, with, and to myself and how unwell I was. And after those four months, I started to get better by getting back into the work that I knew I was good at, but very incrementally, you know, slowly kind of writing articles again and writing about my experience and studying the thing that I realized I had just gone through. And I had been studying mental health, psychological fitness, the neuroscience of happiness. I've been looking at it really of that downstream mindset space in psychology. And then I started to look at the stress part of it as well. So I had all this understanding of what happens when you, you know, you're in an optimized state. And that really helped because I felt validated. I felt known. I felt like it wasn't my fault, that it was just the environment and and societal pressures on women too. I'd had a baby in the middle of the startup and uh, literally gave birth and had had the baby in the little seat carrier with me in my meetings with, you know, investors and she's three weeks old. I mean, I was bound to burn out. I mean, but I wasn't seeing any of those signs as being strange. I kind of thought, oh, this is kind of fun and novel. I get to bring my baby with me. But, you know, that again, that lean in mindset is so dangerous because it should be, why am I here? Yes, we've been talking about burnout now for a long time, you know, years. 
and yet nothing really seems to be done to fix the problem. It feels like it's just an entrenched issue now that people just aren't taking seriously. I don't think we're hearing, you know, the stories enough. We're hearing these big numbers and people with big numbers, it isn't as impactful, right? We need to start being more preventative and helping people before it gets to that point where they have to leave or they have to leave their career or they feel that there's no other choice but that. Um, And there's lots of things that we can do um, if we're just more aware. That's a great tip. And that's something that leaders can start right now, today. The final question then is for those leaders listening who are burnt out themselves, what do they personally do to get themselves out of that hole? First, we want to identify the signs. One of the things that happens is there's this um, underperformer myth that I, I say is, you know, we look at people that are passionate about their work and they love what they do and they're good at what they do. And then all of a sudden we diagnose them as an underperformer and we self-diagnose as underperforming. And yet when you look at all of the traits of someone that is burned out, it's pretty much identical to someone that we diagnose as underperforming. You know, they're making mistakes, they're showing up late, they're taking more sick days, they're withdrawing, they're more irritable, they're more conflict-based. And so, oh, you know, they must be underperforming. No, we put them on that track. And as self-diagnosing as managers, we can't do that because lack of efficacy is that very important third sign of extreme burnout. We want to recognize if we're using very fixed language, always, never, you know, it's always going to be like this. I can't change anything. It's never going to change. When we use that kind of language, it usually identifies high levels of cynicism. And if we're feeling that level of depletion where if it's not like just being tired, it's like, I cannot get up this morning. I can't make decisions. I feel like everything is just like a Herculean task. I don't want to have dinner with my family. I just want to go to bed when I get home. If those are the feelings that we're having, then we are probably at that hit the wall moment. If we're starting to see those signs, we might have an opportunity to kind of get the support we need. And I always suggest access professional support. If you don't feel comfortable doing that within your organization, usually your you know employee assistance programs allow you to get access to anonymously to that kind of care. But it is important for us to get a peer support and there's lots of organizations doing a good job of that. But even if it's just a friend that you trust, that you can talk to about it and professional support, because when someone hits the wall and you look at Dr. Marie Asberg's work, your manager, you're hitting the wall. You have gone through these stages, sort of timeline of someone with burnout, where it's a little bit of a dip, but then you get back to your set point, a little bit of a dip, you get back to your set point. But when you hit the wall, it's like a cliff. When you look at it in sort of this timeline, it's like a cliff and you go all the way down to the bottom below anywhere you've ever been. And sometimes it can last, that recovery, if you're not managing it, can last 18 months to two years. And 20% experience PTSD. So you don't want to get there. You want to treat burnout as a very serious illness that you are not at fault for having. And you need to get support to be able to deal with that. And recognizing that and being okay with it and being honest and radical, you know, acceptance of that is going to help you recover faster and get you back to work in a place where you feel more confident, you feel like you were yourself again. You feel like you can lead with purpose and you're inspiring people, which is what you're meant to do, but you can't feel the guilt for getting the help that you need to get back there. So take it seriously and act quickly so you don't fall off the cliff. You don't. And I love that you said that in in summary. Basically, that's exactly it. Act quickly 
and respond. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for your time. That was a really interesting chat and I'm sure our readers will get a lot from it. And as you said, the book, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It is out now. Thank you. It was just such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.